This is True Crime One-on-One from the Fedora Chronicles Network, and I'm your host, Eric Fisk. Eric Carter Landine from True Consequences returns to talk about the case that started it all for him, the death of his brother Jacob. In this episode, we cover how predators work their way into the lives of unsuspecting women and their families, how victims are often blamed, and how the innocent are scapegoated. We then compare notes and explore exactly how the so-called justice system is complicit through utter incompetence or genuine and actual conspiracy. We end this episode by sharing our thoughts about the healing power of therapy, refusing to remain silent, and reaching out to each other for help. A word of warning, this episode involves talk about domestic violence and child abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Once again, here is Eric Carter Landine from True Consequences. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm talking to the great Eric Carter Landine, who does <laughs> an absolute amazing podcast about true crime in his home state um thank you and not only that i am insanely i don't know if it's envious or jelly it's it, jealousy it's envy or jealousy it's one or the other the show that you did with ariel from the malice podcast unpackaging what happened in the um episode or the, the miniseries on Netflix about Jeffrey Epstein mm-hmm. was amazing. Even though uh, my wife and I saw the um, docu-series together, I actually had to listen to your episodes with Ariel twice because you guys did such a great job conveying the point that, no, no, you're not crazy. You're not crazy if you think that this is all insane. Yeah, it is the most insane criminal case I think I have ever witnessed in my life. And as somebody who is, quote, obsessed, unquote, with true crime, that says that says a lot. Um, it, it's definitely very intense. And man, it just messes with your brain a little bit when you're looking into it. Yeah. Um, and the the the. The I guess um, what everything has in common that I've done so far with true crime one-on-one is that they're, all of them have this sort of underpinning of there's something wrong with the ju- judicial system here in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to keep bringing up uh, Jenny Carreri but the thing is is that when I did the interview with her and I was listening to her talk about how she spends like every spare dime on an, either on investigators or billboards trying to find out what happened to her sister and then talking to um, talking to Ashley this morning and all the other people that I've spoken to it was just like if the criminal justice system did their job, we wouldn't have a podcast. We wouldn't have podcasts. Yeah. And then doing the research into your brother's case, I don't know where to begin. 
Um, and again, I, I mean, just before we got in touch, I reread the file that you sent me. Um, I'm awestruck. Yeah. I'm dumbfounded. And the thing is, is that when the first, the first time you and I talked, I asked you, what keeps you going? What, what, what got you started in true crime? And you mentioned your brother. Mm-hmm. Do we want to do a little refresher on that? Do we want to do like, how did you get started doing um, true crime podcasts, especially talking about your home state and, and then go from there? Sure. Yeah. Um, so as we're going to get into, my brother was murdered 33 years ago and the person responsible was never prosecuted, was never charged, uh, still is free to this day. And that really piqued my interest in true crime. I mean, I'd already been into really weird stuff. My apologies. I need to mute that computer. Uh, I, I've always been into weird stuff since I was a kid, uh, mm-hmm. p- you know, paranormal stuff, conspiracy stuff, murder, true crime, all that kind of stuff, just because I feel like it gave me a little bit of an escape from the horrors of my life. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You and me both. Uh, yeah. So, uh, starting the podcast was kind of a, a process for me and it wasn't something that I it's it it slowly just kind of dawned on me over time that I I wanted to do something to honor Jacob's memory and also to help families that are in a similar situation um, as my family is and giving them a voice for for them to be able to tell their stories because there are so many cases here in New Mexico specifically with children where the state of New Mexico just forgets about them, just drops the ball and, uh, justice is rarely, uh, found for a lot of these kids. And so as, as time progressed, you know, 33 years goes by and I start to watch these cases coming out of New Mexico for, especially with children just being murdered and abused and it just doesn't get better. It just never gets better. It just keeps happening. And that that's really the fire that drives me in all of this, really. You know, my intention behind this show, yeah, I want to make it entertaining. Yeah, I want to mm-hmm. make it listenable. But my my driving force in all of this is is to help people to tell their story, get some exposure on their cases, and hopefully get people to think about things when they're sitting in a voting booth. Um you know, are these the people that really have our best interests at heart and have conversations about what's wrong with the laws here? Yeah. And, and those are all of the things that I, I, I hope I've done a good job. I've, I've tried really hard. Um, there's still so much more I want to do, but it's, it's a huge part of why I do this. I think that for me, looking at everything that is going on, like we had said in every all politics is local politics is like mm-hmm. a, a it's a cliche that i read on a bumper sticker once and it stuck with me and um we're supposed to be one of the greatest nations this world has ever seen 
the uh, United States is supposed to be, there's nothing we can't do if we just set our minds to it. Mm-hmm. And then when you take a closer look, like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> looking behind the curtain, um, it's pretty ugly. And, yeah. and the notion is that, you know, money and power can buy influence. And and I hate to say this, but if you have enough money and you have enough power, you can get away with anything. Mm-hmm. Or it's and it's also to the other extreme. Like one of the things I had learned when my wife was almost killed in in, 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 a, in a car wreck. Whereas the opposite is true. Whereas like if you don't if you don't have two nickels to rub together, yeah, and there's you have no assets to go after, you can get away with anything too within reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it's the people who are caught in the middle. The people who wake up every morning, go to work, do their jobs, come home, pay their taxes, pay their bills, that we're really sort of like, we're stuck holding the bag, yeah, as it were. And, and God help you if anything awful happens where there's a miscarriage of justice and the police are like, eh, you know, it's just another homicide or it's just another like, like um, what I was talking to ashley this morning about whereas oh uh, drug deal gone bad or just drug addicts just killing each other that that's who Mm -hmm. who cares nobody cares i'm sorry amanda shirley um you know talking to amanda shirley and and with her her case oh it's just a a a recovering drug addict or somebody who has problems with drugs Uh, good riddance and that you have like family who is hurt who's wounded who has this sense of loss with a killer just walking free, like as if nothing happened. I, I don't understand how some people cope, but getting a little sidetracked here. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to talk about Jacob. Yeah. And looking at your case, reading what you had sent me, you're literally right in the middle of all of this. I am, yeah. Let's start with the beginning. Like, let's let's talk about Jacob. And I understand that Jacob was very young, but what can you tell us about him? <laughs> uh, Jacob, for as young as he was, had so much personality. He had so much joy and fearlessness. Um, he was a wild baby. He loved to do crazy stuff. Uh, one of his favorite things to do was to sit in a baby swing, one of the motorized ones, one of the early ones from the 80s. And as it would swing forward, he would reach for the front legs and grab them and throw the entire thing backwards. And then he would lay on the floor and laugh. He thought it was the funniest thing. He was just insane. Um, He loved to pull the drawers out of the kitchen counters Uh, So there would be cutlery falling all around him and he would just sit there laughing. He, he was such a happy kid and I, I loved my brother so much. You know, I, I prayed that my mom would get pregnant with him and, um, you know, he was, he was my miracle, my miracle baby because they weren't trying to have a baby. Right. And. Um, she really wasn't excited about the idea of having another baby, but he, he showed up and, 
he just brought a lot of joy into our lives in the short amount of time that he was there. Um, what was the relationship with your parents like? Because that plays, I think it plays a huge factor in what eventually happened. What, what was going on with your parents at the time? Yeah, there was a lot happening. Um, my father is a Pentecostal evangelist. Mm-hmm. And so he traveled around. He was really trying to build a name for himself in that community. Um, I think he had aspirations for being the next Jimmy Swagger or Benny Hinn or, you know, you could name a, a thousand of them. Um, you could throw a rock probably and hit one of them. They're, they're everywhere. Um, and they were everywhere in the 80s especially. So he, he had those aspirations and that, and that led to him working a lot and traveling a lot. And my mom was often, to use your, your phrase, holding the bag. She yep. was often left holding the bag. Um, you know, she was pregnant. She had me. She couldn't work. And my father would just easily forget that he even had a family. And we would be struggling. You know, my mom didn't know how we were going to be able to afford to eat sometimes because we had no money. My dad was gone and we didn't know when he was going to be back. And so, you know, in my my episode where I interview her, she talks about how we used to go for a walk every day around the apartment complex we lived in. And before we would go on the walk, we would pray and we would ask uh, God for help because we didn't know how we were going to eat that day. And every day when we would come back, there would be a package of food left on our doorstep by one of the elderly neighbors who lived nearby. And um, that was that was amazing. It was terrible that it, we had to rely on, you know, the kindness of strangers to survive. Yeah. But that was that was the reality of, of where we were. And I remember my mom being very sad all the time. And at the same time, my dad started to have some kind of a relationship with a woman. Um, I, I don't know much about how far that relationship went. My sense is that it was probably more of an emotional relationship mm -hmm. than a physical one. Um, but that was the final straw for my mom. Um, you know, after having to care for the kids and, figure out how to feed us and, and all of that to find out that he's, he's being unfaithful and, you know, trying to connect with somebody else. It was just a slap in the face, I think. Yeah. So she, we were living in Texas at the time and she decided we would move back to New Mexico to live with my grandparents and that she was going to separate him from him. My brother was probably, I want to say six months at the time when we left and we moved to New Mexico. And then, so your, your, your parents are essentially separated mm -hmm. and, um, your mom moved on with her life. I, I, I guess I assume. So, yeah, I mean, she, she got a job at the local grocery store. Um, we were living at my grandparents' house. She was trying to save money so that we could find a place to live. And, uh, this man that she knew showed up and started to, 
I would I would say court her, but I feel like grooming is probably the right word. Yeah. Um. He happened to be my dad's best friend. So this man, um, he's known my mom her whole life. His sister is married to my mom's brother. Um, our families are very connected. His father married my parents. He was a preacher. Um, there's just a lot of overlap. And it's a small town in New Mexico, so you kind of expect that to happen. Um, but he starts to love bomb uh, my mom and I. And I remember thinking, you know, this guy is great. He's got, uh, he had this like really nice 1978 Mustang GT. Um, I think it was an eight cylinder. It was a beautiful car. It was red and black. Um, he, you know, he liked to watch good movies. He listened to music all the time. He had a great stereo system. He was very interested in me and, um, hanging out with me, which is something that my dad never was. Yeah. So, um, I was very charmed by him. I think my mom was, was charmed by him and he slowly worked his way in so much so that within a couple of months we were living with him or within about a month, I think maybe less we were living with him and everything seemed okay. Everything seemed like it was going to be fine. You know, my dad, um, really wasn't in the picture. My mom seemed to be pretty happy. We both felt like he was a decent person. Yeah. And so, um, can we even mention his name on the podcast? Is this something that, because is this an active ongoing case or? So, uh, we cannot mention his name on the podcast. Okay. Uh, the, the case is considered closed, but I have requested and I'm working to request assistance from the attorney general to try to reopen the case. Right. And, and I don't want to jeopardize this is this is my last Hail Mary situation. If if this doesn't work then there's basically nothing else I can do at that point. You mean going on other people's podcasts and saying, "Hey, you know, th- th- we need I need help reopening this case." is essentially like what you're what you're trying to do because the thing is I'm looking at this. I'm reading yeah. this. Yeah. And it's it, like, once again, how, how is it that people are allowed to get away with such horrible things? Um, and I'm kind of getting, uh, I'm really getting ahead of myself here. That's okay. Um, yeah, it's, there's a lot to it. <laughs> so the thing is, um, there was a problem. There was a problem at home. Yeah. And they thought it was you. Yeah is essentially what I, what the gist of it, what, mm-hmm. what exactly was going on? What was happening? Um, weird things started to happen to Jacob. He started to get injuries that were, um, unexplainable, I guess. I mean, there was an explanation, but it, it was not apparent at the time what was happening. Um, so there was one particular injury where he had a huge lump on his head and it ended up being a subdural hematoma that had to be lanced and drained. And 
um, my stepfather told, he was my stepfather at the time. He was my mom's boyfriend, right. but he told, he told my mom and my grandmother that, uh, he saw me kick Jacob in the head. He told them that I was very jealous of Jacob. Um, and I, I don't remember being jealous of Jacob at all. I remember, um, I mean, I prayed for the kid. I, I wanted him so badly. I wanted a brother so badly and I loved him. Um, it's possible that I was jealous of him, you know, six year old kids, when the baby comes around, it's pretty normal for them to get jealous. Um, I do remember being jealous of his name and thinking that he had a better name than me. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember telling my grandma, um, you know, I wish my name was as nice as Jacob's. And she's like, well, your name is great. And I'm like, no, his name is nicer than mine. And she's like, well, do you even know what your name means? And I said, no. She said, your name means princely. Mm -hmm. and, and then I was like, oh, all right. Well, I guess I'm good with it. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm, I'm cool with that. I, I was told it was Little Prince, but okay. It, yeah. Yeah. So that's the only jealousy that I remember. That, now, that doesn't mean that I wasn't jealous of Jacob. Um, it's quite possible. Right. And how old were you but at the time? How old were you at I the was, time? I was six. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I've talked to some experts and they've all told me that even if I was jealous and even if I did kick Jacob in the head, at six, year, six years old, I would not have had the strength to uh, induce an injury to cause a subdural hematoma requiring it to be lanced and drained. Um, that there's just no possibility that I could exert that level of force that would be needed because babies' bodies are um, soft and their bones are flexible. And it takes a lot of force to, to injure a baby like that. Right. So uh, that was the first, first event. Then things just kept getting weirder. Um, we found sunflower seed shells in his crib. And of course I was blamed for that. Um, I, I do have to say that my mom's boyfriend was known to eat sunflower seeds nonstop That's, okay. all the time. Um, bruises on Jacob's body. Jacob's behavior started to change. He went from a happy, joyful daredevil child to a frightened, terrified, um, unwilling to do anything risky. You know, if you would even lift him up above your head, he would start screaming and clawing at your hair. Um, my grandmother's the first one that noticed that behavior shift where he was just horrified of being picked up and, um, would just clench onto my mom and cry. And he was unconsolable. Um, my mom wasn't really sure what was happening. So she decided to send me to California with my dad. Um, she, her, she told me that she wanted to protect me because she was just not really clear about what was going on. She didn't really believe that I was the one doing all this to Jacob. Um, so, you know, I, I think that she probably saved my life by doing that. By sending you, sending you away to live with your dad. Yeah. All right. So I think I was there for maybe a month. Um, 
I, you know, I started a new kindergarten, um, made new friends. And then one night my dad wakes me up at like four in the morning and tells me that we have to pack and get on an airplane back to Albuquerque. And, uh, he told me that there was an accident and that Jacob had been hurt and that he was in surgery. And when we got to the airport in Albuquerque, we learned that he had passed away overnight. And so I guess I should tell about what happened. So my mom that evening was working and my grandmother was watching my brother. And my mom had limited my stepfather from, from any alone time with my brother that had been completely cut off after I was sent to California because she really started to suspect that something was wrong. And my grandmother called my mom at work and said, hey, I really want to go to church. So what can I do with Jacob? My mom only had an hour of her shift left. And she said, well, I guess you can take him to my boyfriend's uh, because I don't really think anything can happen in an hour. I'll be off soon. As soon as she hung up with my grandmother, though, she had this really horrible feeling of dread. And she started begging her boss to let her get off of work early. And her boss wouldn't let her. So she tried to busy herself so she wouldn't think about it. And I would say within half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, um, her boyfriend is running into the grocery store in a panic. And an ambulance is driving by really quickly. And he tells my mom that my brother was unconscious, that he didn't know what happened, uh, but that he was going to the hospital for treatment. My brother's injuries were so severe that he had to be life-flighted to Albuquerque, which is about 75 miles away. And um, my parents and my mother and my grandparents all went up there, along with my mom's boyfriend. And that's when things started to get really strange. Um, my stepfather, the entire time, my brother was in surgery, kept saying, uh, this doesn't look good for me. I can't believe this happened. This is going to look really bad for me. Um, he just really seemed to be worried about himself um, and not worried about Jacob at all. And the physician noted that in the official report that he, he'd never seen anybody so concerned with themselves and, and not concerned with the child who was on the brink of death. That is pretty selfish and that is pretty self-centered. I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm stating the obvious. I think it's telling, you know, I think it tells a lot about his state of mind and where he was mentally. Um, it really tells you everything that you need to know about this character. I think so. I think so. So, you know, that was, that was the thing that, looking back, you know, I carried a lot of guilt about this. As soon as we landed, I was taken into an interview room with the state police and I was interviewed. Um, and they asked me point blank if I'd hurt my brother. And prior to that, prior to being even taken in there, my stepfather pulled me aside and said, don't lie. Don't you dare lie. You know what happens to people when they lie. Um, 
And my father and I went into the interview room. They asked me if I hurt my brother. Um, I got very agitated. And my father said something like, oh, it's, it's okay, just tell them the truth. And I said, no. And they asked me if I knew who did, and I said, no. And then they asked me if my stepfather had ever hurt me or if he'd ever physically hit me. And I said, no, but I, but he acts like he's going to a lot. Um, and then that was the end of the interview. So, you know, I carried a lot of guilt. Um, even, even on the plane ride to Albuquerque, I told my father, I thought that I killed Jacob. That's a because hor- I started yeah. to, yeah, that's a hor- that's yeah. a horrible burden to put on somebody at that age. That is, I mean, that's a whole, I mean, you, I mean, you were a kid, you were like six mm-hmm. and they put, and they put this on you or he put you on the, I'm, I'm still kind of confused how that they were able to convince you that somehow you were to blame or, or he, I, I don't, I don't understand. So anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I think part of it is my personality. Um, I, I'm a people pleaser. You know, I want everyone around me to be happy and harmonious. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that happens. And and that was made worse by the circumstances that happened later. But um, that's always been my thing is I always want everyone to just be happy, have a good time. And so I'm not going to do things to rock the boat. Um, He was very manipulative. and, And that becomes more apparent later in the story. Yeah, he was really good at convincing people to do things. And, you know, that's probably pretty typical with somebody who has behavior like his. Um, so I, I think that when I got in front of the cops, you know, I realized my, my dad said, just be honest. And my dad was there. So I, I was like, OK, I'll be honest. Um, I didn't really have anything to lose because he wasn't there pressuring me to say anything that I didn't want to say. Um, now, is it possible that I kicked my brother in the head? Yeah, probably possible. It's possible that I was jealous of him. What's not possible is that I had the strength to yeah. injure him in the way that he was injured. Keep in mind also that I have two boys of my own. And I can tell you that they have a rivalry. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty, that's, they, they, they love and hate each other. One minute that they're all hugs and kisses and then, oh, you're my best friend. And I'm so happy that you're my brother. And the next minute is like, I hate you. You son, you you son of a bitch. I just, you know, I wish you were never (laughs) freaking born. And, um, that's, that's the relationship with brothers. I can tell you stories about relationships with my own brother but the the restraining order won't allow me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that I have a very contentious relationship with my brother because of my my mother's at just fawning all over him. My, you know, my mm. my. He, I mean, he was definitely he's definitely my mom's favorite. But I don't think that I ever like kicked him in the head so hard that he would almost die. Or, right. or anything like that. There's the thing is, is that you can get really super angry with your brother. I, unless, of course, you're a sociopath or a psychopath, I don't think that right. you have the, the, the capacity 
to kill your brother. I mean, I mean, I might be wrong. I might be talking out of turn, but especially yeah, at I, your age, especially at well, your age. Well, yeah, and that's the that's the thing, you know, talking to medical experts <laughs> yeah. and people who deal with these types of cases, and they're like, "There's just no way that you had that strength to do that." And then he also said that um, one time he had left me alone with my brother, which, first of all, that's completely crazy if that actually happened. I don't remember right. that happening. But why would you leave a six-year-old in charge of a nine-month-old? Like, for, how is that? Well, for how long? <laughs> how long would you leave a six-year-old with the six-month-old? How how long did he? They. I don't know. I don't even know if that really happened. He's so he's claiming that happened. I don't remember that happening. He claims that I tried to pick Jacob up out of the crib and dropped him. Um, and so, just for context for you. Jacob weighed 20 pounds at that point. Okay. I was probably lucky if I weighed 30. I was so small and so skinny um, at that point. So there's no way I could have even gotten him out of the crib. I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump ahead here, but I think that you're being set up for the fall. A hundred percent. I think that he was setting you up to take the blame. Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah, that's that's his MO. And, and we see that in other instances where he he already has a plan on how he's going to get out of these situations and he's already he's already working people you know ahead of time so yeah it's insane it's insane um one of the problems with the case according to the district attorney was that my mom changed her story um so because she was asked that night if she felt like he was capable of doing this, of hurting Jacob. And her response was, I don't think so. And, and that was an honest response at the time. Sure. She didn't think, she didn't think that he was capable of it because he was presenting this personality, this facade of a great guy. Um, and he would later prove that he was more than capable of doing that. And so the DA, one of his excuses for not trying this case is is that my mom went from not thinking he was capable to fully believing he was, which I think is a crock, in my opinion. There does some from the DA. There is some. The there is something. There is something about that that is very fishy on my end, knowing full well that there is. Maybe the Stockholm syndrome is maybe not an appropriate analogy or label to put on this, but there is something about women who have been, like you said, groomed mm -hmm. or cultivated, programmed. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mean to make an unfair comparison, but there are, there are the women in the Manson family who mm -hmm. could not possibly imagine that Charles Manson was a bad person. They just could. They just couldn't imagine it. And right. that, and that they, there is a point where is is like a woman will do anything to protect the man that she loves under the right circumstances. And I, and I think that that says more about him than it does about her. Sure. Because, like I said, he he had this whole thing down to the point where people didn't in the community didn't think he was capable of the stuff that he did because he was so good at hiding it. Um, so 
yeah, I, I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know what happened with my brother. I didn't really understand the full thing at the time, but I remember shortly after the funeral, my mom and I and my stepfather were going to my grandmother's house for something. And my grandfather comes busting out of the house and he's enraged and he's yelling at my stepdad and he's like, get out of the car and hit somebody who can talk. He just kept saying that over and over again. And my stepfather got really scared and he took off. And that was the first moment where I started to think, oh, something happened here, (laughs) you know? Um, And so my grandparents seemed to suspect it pretty early on. What happened with your parents' relationship after this? Uh, Well, they had divorced. My dad moved away. And I really didn't see him again until I was about 15. So he just kind of disappeared. Sounds very, very similar to my own life story. Not to interject. No, it's okay. Because I'm seeing a pattern here. I mean, because all it was what happened to me in my family was very similar, except for I was 13 when no, was I 12 or 13 when my mom's boyfriend did exactly what you said, starting with quote love bombing mm-hmm. and trying to convince us that he's an actual good guy, even though that all the the signs were there. He was just, he was a little too into us, if you know what I mean. Oh, I get it. And, you know, showering with us with gifts and promises. And it was just, you know, you know, trips on his boat and all of these things. And then as soon as, as soon as my, you know, my mom was away and he was quote babysitting, that's when the abuse started. It was almost, Mm -hmm. it was almost immediate when I like acts, when I was pushing the boundaries, which is something kids do, especially young teenage pre-pubescent boys that's what they do they push boundaries and i was smacked pretty hard i was abused pretty badly uh the first chance he had the opportunity and that there is in and you try and tell people hey my mom's boyfriend is beating me oh can't be him he's so nice he's such a good guy yep he wouldn't do that you're lying why are you trying to ruin everything for your mom that kind of thing so there's a pattern there and that you know men I hate to say this, but we men can be manipulators often. Mm-hmm. And um, I and I've heard ver- variations of the story over and over again. He's far it, too it, he's far too he's far too charming to be an an, an abuser. Yeah, it's very formulaic. Yeah, and it, it's very consistent in stories like this with individuals like this. It's very consistent that behavior. Uh, it, you know, that, that alone learning more about this whole thing gave a lot of credibility to, because you start to question everything, you know, um, you go 33 years without anybody giving a shit that your baby brother died. You start to question, like, maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe, maybe I made this worse than it was in my head. You know, and then and then I hear other stories like yours and like others that are almost exactly the same. Yep. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe it's not that far out there. Maybe this is like a real thing that happens. Right. 
Um, so he, he convinced my mom to marry him after all of this. And that's when everything got really bad. Yeah. Um, as if things couldn't get any worse, any worse, they do. They did. Yeah. They got much worse. Um, you know, my, my brother was dead and that was horrible. Um, but what we lived through together was, was, was also horrible. Um, his personality changed. He became very controlling and very angry. There really wasn't anything that I could do, um, to make it better. It seemed like everything I did made it worse. Um, it seemed like everything my mom did made it worse. And when I say that, I, I mean, like, we could be on the couch watching TV and he would say something and I would look up at him and then he would start screaming at me for giving him dirty looks. And then that would escalate into him beating the shit out of my mom right in front of me. And this would happen over and over and over again. And as that behavior escalated, um, he started to do things like locking me in my room mm-hmm. for, for hours and hours at a time. Um, if I needed the restroom, I would have to knock on my own door. There was a lock on the outside of my door. And if he didn't want to come to the door, then he didn't. He would just ignore me. Uh, if he did and I asked him to go to the restroom and he felt like I didn't really need to go, then he wouldn't let me go. And he would tell me if I told my mom what was happening, that he would kill her. I'm sorry. This is like, I'm, I'm really having severe, massive flashbacks right now. Same. I'm sorry. Almost the, almost exactly the same thing occurred to me until the age of 14. And it went from being my bedroom that I shared with my brother to the basement. Yeah. So I had been locked in, I was locked in the basement for an entire month, you know, and it was just like, um, I'm not trying to outdo your story. I'm just saying there's a pattern with these psychotic people. This is, this is what abusers do, especially to the children, their wives or girlfriends, children, when they feel threatened, this is not about you. This is yeah. about their sense of inadequacy or their 100%. jealousy. This is, it's 100%. not, and, and in the off chance that there's somebody listening to this podcast who's going through something similar, it's not you, it's, it's him. It's, he yeah. does this because he has lack of control in his own life. Go ahead. No, absolutely. Um, he locked me in the dryer. He locked me in closets. He would lock me outside, you know, and that was just my life and I, and I accepted it, but I started to do things to protect myself. So I had a knife under my pillow. I had a can of Aquanet and a lighter and I had a baseball bat under my bed and I was ready for anything. Um, and I was nine years old and that's how I lived. I was constantly trying to figure out how I was going to survive the next 24 hours. Um, 
all the while my mom is just getting the shit beat out of her every day. And, and what I alluded to earlier was, you know, his manipulation and control. There was a picnic we were going to go to on Easter one year and he had just beat my mom mercilessly the night before. And she was so bruised and swollen all over her body. And so he lined me and his kids up and, you know, very similar to a drill sergeant, he's walking back and forth and he's saying, if you're, if someone asks you what happened to your mom, what do you say? If they ask you why she's bruised up, what do you say? And he did this over and over again for a long time until we had the story down exactly the way he wanted us to tell it with the right inflection and the right uh, facial expressions and everything had to be perfect before we were even allowed to go to this Easter picnic. So, I so, just, I just want to just ask you, where did the other kids come from? You said that they're his kids. Were they from a different relationship or were they your half siblings? Who, who were these kids? They were my step siblings. Okay. Uh, they were from his first marriage. Okay. Yeah, he had a boy and a girl. And um, he came, they came to our house occasionally. They weren't always there. Um, so, yeah. Um, all of this just continued to escalate. Um, there's a situation where my mom almost died and, and I, I saved her life. I, I heard them fighting and she stopped screaming suddenly. And so I smashed my window in my bedroom. I jumped out and I started throwing rocks through their window and he chased me. And I found out later that he had a wire hanger wrapped around my mother's neck and she was losing consciousness. Holy shit. And, um, sorry. It's okay. No, no, it's, it's perfectly okay. I mean, the thing is that it was, it, it, do you have any idea how heroic you were in what you did at that moment? After everything that you had been through, you actually had the courage to do that, to save your mom. That says so much about your inner strength. Yeah. Well, I just knew something was wrong. I just could feel it. I could tell. And I wasn't going to let that happen to her. So I did whatever I could. And he chased me down the road. And I ran into the neighbor's house and my mom was able to leave. And I have to, t I have to say the cops had come out multiple times over and over again through this period of life. Um, I have tons of police report copies in my office here. Uh, nothing ever happened. There's no documentation on the police's side or on the court side of any of these calls, of any of this violence that he did. <laughs> which is baffling to me. I'm and I'm sure some of it, I'm not surprised. I'm, and I'm sure some of it is that my mom didn't want to press charges, right? That's, that's exactly it. it. That's exactly what happened with my mom as well. Cause towards the end of their relationship, everything was all fine and dandy until he started to attack her and go after my brother in front of her. Cause this is, it's hard for me to say this. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't until 
10 or 15 years after I left. I left in 87 to because I thought that after my mom broke up with a new boyfriend, I thought that my mom's abuser would come back. And he threatened to kill me. He said that before he died, he was going to kill me. Mm. So I went to go live with my dad, thinking that after my mom broke up with her new boyfriend, who was really good to us, and who was not an abuser, and he was the guy who said, you know, Jesus, Linda, I think that you and your kids should go to therapy and talk about what happened. I had a situation where I had to crawl through a heating duct from the basement through the floor in the in the hallway to the phone in my mom's bedroom to call the police when he showed up defied the restraining order because she when she Mm -hmm. found out when she found out that my brother was being abused and seeing it happen in front of her that's when she hit the brakes i didn't realize until late years later that other things had happened as well there's something in us that snaps when okay i can take all the abuse you can you can dish out but when you start abusing my mom or my sister or my brother that's that's when i'm going to start smashing windows or crawl through heating ducts yeah that's exactly you know um but i didn't re- it wasn't until years later that i started to do my investigation because there's other things that went on on my end thanks to my dad and what my dad found out through friends of the, of the police is that and it's a phenomenon i don't know if there's a name for it and i'm going to keep using the word stockholm syndrome because i don't know what else to talk to call it eric mm-hmm. abused women are somehow taught to believe that somehow they had it coming and they have to protect their abusers for reasons i don't know yeah i don't i don't know and it, it, he said, yeah, go, sorry. No, go he, ahead. He, he said to her multiple times, the only way you're leaving me is in a body bag. He said that to her in front of me all the time. And so I think that is part of it. I think that was for my mom. That was part of it. You know, she, she didn't want, not because she didn't, not because she wanted to put me in that situation, but she was probably scared of what would happen if she wasn't there. So that was part of it, I think, for her. You know, the fear of, of he, he proved that he was capable. Strangulation is a huge indication of lethality. Yeah. It's one of the biggest ones. Oh, yeah. That and, that and animal torture. That's, yep. did, you, did you see any of that? Did you see any animal torture? It's interesting that you bring that up. Um, one day he got really mad at me. Oh, this is going to make me sick. He decided to run over my puppy and to show it to me, show me my puppy's mangled corpse as a lesson. He did it on purpose and he thought it was yeah, funny. That's, that is awful. So he just, he was just psychotic completely. And, and things just continued to get worse. Um, when I was, I think I was 11, he sexually abused me. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, telling me that if I said anything, my mom would die and I would die. So I didn't. 
because I was afraid. And at the same time, he starts grooming my 13-year-old cousin. But he didn't count on her being who she was. Mm-hmm. She She's a loud mouth, and she doesn't give a fuck about right. anything. She doesn't care what anybody thinks. She just says whatever's on her mind. Yeah. So he, so he's calling her at my grandmother's house trying to get her to come over so that he can molest her. And she goes right to my grandparents and it's like, this guy's calling me and trying to get me to have sex with him. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Wow. You know, she didn't really have anything to fear. She didn't know what was going on at my mom's house. Um, and he hadn't really gotten to the point where he could control her and manipulate her in, in any way. So my mom found out and that was, that was what she needed to get the strength up to leave him. And she did. Um, she was granted an annulment on the marriage because of how violent he was. Right. So that again, for me is like, why is there no record of any of this? We were granted a protection, an order of protection that was supposed to be forever. Um, the court has no record of that. That doesn't exist anywhere. I don't understand. I have a copy of it. It's on my desk. <laughs> so you, you have a copy. You have a copy of something on your desk that shouldn't yeah. exist, but does. Yeah. It's signed by the judge. It's almost as if fucking psychotics in the government look out for mm-hmm. other psychotics in the general public. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if these sick fuckers, pardon my language. Wait a minute. I have an explicit tag. I can say whatever I want. It's like these (laughs) sick fucks look out for each other. Yeah. Because one of the things I had found out, and this is very hard to sort of wrap my brain around. One of the people who used to cover for my mom's boyfriend was also in the police force. It's not surprising. One of his friends was, and one of his friends who was used to cover for him was also abusing his wife and children. Not surprising. Not shocking at all. No. And these Uh, animals, these animals look out for each other. They do. And you won't be surprised to learn that he was friends with all the police and they played basketball together every week. Fucking shocking. Right? Uh, You'll also probably not be surprised to learn that he worked for the county and had keys to every building in the county. My mother's abuse abuser worked for the town uh, public works department. Mm hmm. So here's here's where that becomes important. Right. (laughs) Um. And I didn't get into this, so I'll kind of step back a little bit. His story changed four times when the investigation was happening about my brother's case. Right. Every story he gave was an example of sharp force trauma. And the official medical examiner report was very clear that it was blunt force trauma that killed my brother. And so that's the first thing. His story changed multiple times. Um This is where I get really mad. I get really enraged about this. By all means, have at it. He he was scheduled to have a polygraph. And in one of the files in that document, there's mention of the detective comes up to the lead investigator and says, hey, don't worry about the polygraph. We just got a confession. All right. 
From so who? Just keep that in. Yeah, okay. From him. Okay. From him. Okay. So keep that in your mind for a second. Uh, he confessed to killing my brother. Pretty clear. All right. For some reason, they still do a polygraph. They ask him two questions. They ask him if he ever intentionally hit Jacob and if he hit Jacob. Those are the two questions. Okay. He said uh, no to both of them and he failed. Now, I remember going to that appointment. I remember driving up to Santa Fe with my, my mom and him and waiting in the car while he did the polygraph. And he came out and he was like, I passed. No big deal. He failed. I found out later. I found out a lot later that he failed. So we have a confession. We have a failed polygraph. We have a medical examiner report that's very clear about what happened. Uh, there was a pattern of abuse. My brother had a broken rib that was healed along with the original subdural hematoma and then the secondary subdural hematoma that killed him. Um, when he was going unconscious in my stepfather's care, brain fluid was coming out of his ears and his nose. Holy shit. That's how hard, that's how hard he hit him. Holy shit. I'm sorry. Oh my God. So, um, the thing that, that gets to me and, and makes me question everything is we asked the cold case investigator to reopen the case because in, in 1991, my mom went to the DA and said, I want you to press charges against him. I'm convinced now he's proven to me that he's capable of this. I'm fully convinced that he did this. And the DA treated her like she was just a vindictive wife. Right trying to cause problems for her poor husband and he refused and meanwhile this man is stalking us for years he's coming to my bedroom every night knocking on my window telling me he's gonna fucking kill me right he's following us around town he's intimidating us um he's leaving shit on our doorstep just to fuck with us right when you say shit, do you mean animal feces or do you mean like other stuff? Um, notes. Yeah. Okay. Photographs. Just all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so eventually he calms down. That stops. I think it's because he's convinced that we're not going to do anything about it. And the DA is not going to do anything about it. We have a cold case investigator reopen the case in 2005. And that's the beginning of the document I sent you. Yep. And that's kind of where this whole thing starts. Um, the cold case investigator was very clear in his assessment. He said, there's no doubt that the way Jacob died happened one way, not the four ways that this man claims. And it's clear that he's responsible. He says like it could be negligent, you know, negligently caused that's possible, but it's clear that he's responsible for Jacob's death. And so he asks the DA, which is a different DA at the time, to open the case. He sends it to him for prosecution. He's like, this is clear. The DA says, no, sorry, we're not going to do it because of A, the statute of limitations, which doesn't exist even... for a murder case. It does not <laughs> exist for a murder case. I can tell you this right now. Statu There's some weird things yeah. with New Mexico laws. Okay. Um, and it depends on how they're charging him. So... I haven't gotten clarity on that, but I'm still working through it. But apparently if it's child abuse resulting in death negligently caused, 
there might have been a statute of okay. limitations in the 80s, um, which is probably what they would try to charge him with because um, to prove intentional cause is going to be very hard. Um, but remember, he fucking confessed. Exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the statue of limitations is null and void when he confessed. Correct. That's, and, that's and crazy. I'm sorry. That's crazy. It's insane. We'll get this. Not only that, but there's, according to the DA, a lack of evidence because guess what? There is no documentation of the confession. There's no recording. There's no type documentation. There's no signed confession. None of that information exists. Where did it go? It's crazy. It's crazy, but it's not. It's not unheard of, but it's, 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 it's sort of like what we've already established before because they, they look out for each other and because he has friends in the police force the obvious assumption that you can and should be making is that his friends in the police made all the paperwork disappear that they can get their hands on or he used all his keys that he had to every building in the in the county. That's right. And got into the DA's office and made it disappear himself. That is crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. So, insane. that is insane. I think, like best case scenario, the police and the DA were completely negligent in all of this. Right. Right. Worst case scenario, they're complicit. If I was going to change the name of my podcast, that's what I would change it to. The justice, complicit? the justice system is complicit. <laughs> so seriously, I mean, seriously, that's the reoccurring theme of so many yeah. of the interviews that I do. Yeah. Is that the, the, the criminal justice system. There's either a, a conspiracy for a cover up or a conspiracy of incompetence. Total incompetence. Yeah. Or both. At the same oh, time. yeah. Oh, 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 my God. My my buddy, the district attorney, screwed up. So I'm going to bail him out and he's going to owe me a favor someday. Mm-hmm. That's exact. That, I mean, that's exactly what this smells like. Yeah. So as you can imagine, it's it's been. So 2005, after the D.A. refused to prosecute again. Um, the state police closed the case. So it's closed now. It's cold. Um, and my only hope is that the attorney general will reopen it and will supersede the jurisdictional issues that we have because the DA refused to try it. Um, that's rare. That doesn't happen very easily. Uh, for the AG to step on the jurisdiction of the DA, there has to be um, a, a very strong reason. I think that there is a strong reason, but um, I don't know if they'll be able to prove any of that because nothing exists anymore. Like what so else? That's where we're at. Like so, the there's so many questions that I have to ask. Sure, go ahead. And this is this is the question that I get asked a lot. Mm-hmm. 
when I talk about my up, upbringing, which has eerie parallels um, to yours, how do you cope? How do you keep from going crazy? <laughs> I mean, how do you keep yourself from just losing your mind? And and how do you get out of bed every morning? And the answer that I I give is that, well, what makes you think I get out of bed every morning? <laughs> how, how do you know yeah. that I'm not doing this podcast underneath my bed? Right. Um, I, I, I can't. My answer to that after after I make a joke about it is that I don't have a choice because I don't want yeah. him to win. A hundred percent. There's a few things for me. I think therapy has been tremendously helpful yeah. for me. Um, and, and hearing other people's stories has also been helpful mm -hmm. knowing that, that I, that this isn't unique and it's not, uh, you know, I'm not alone. P people don't like to talk about this stuff. Right. And, 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 and rightfully so, you know, it's, it's not fun to talk about. It hurts to bring all this up again. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's there's a power in that there's a strength in that and and hearing somebody have the courage to tell their story you know like you did with me today like thank you for that well, you're welcome that that gives me strength you know because i know i know that we can we can survive this people yeah. can survive this people can overcome this something else that helped me was my grandmother um, shortly after all of this happened, I, I was struggling with depression and um, suicidal thoughts mm -hmm. and, and all of this stuff. You know, I hated myself. I hated myself. Um, I hated my life. And I didn't want to live anymore. Yeah. And I had so much shame and so much anger and so much resentment to everybody that it, you know, existence was, was, was painful. I mean, that sounds really emo and gothy, but that's just what it was. That's exactly it. Was so painful. it. Yeah. My grandmother, she noticed that and she pulled me aside and, and she's not a very warm, <laughs> loving person. She yeah. wants to be, right. but she's not. Um, but she pulled me aside and she's like, look, I, I want to tell you something. And I was like, okay. And she's like, I know what happened to you. It was awful. Like I get it. It was terrible. But you have to make a choice right now. And I was like, okay, what are you talking about, weird old lady? <laughs> um, <laughs> she's like, you have to decide if you're going to let this overcome you and overtake you and drag you into the depths of darkness and despair. Or if you're going to choose a different way. Choose to turn it into something better. Choose to help people in this situation. Yeah, You can make that decision. That's up to you. You can become just like him, or yeah. you can do, you can, or you can do better. Yep. And I think that helped me a lot. With me, it was my, my aunt Jenna and my uncle Bob, and the way that they pulled me aside and said, essentially exactly that, mm -hmm. like almost exactly word for word. And, you know, it, it wasn't until later that I realized they had also overcome some stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, for me, 
and I am, I'm estranged from my mother. I have not spoken to my mother in Jesus until like maybe a day or two after my father died. Um, also on the advice of my therapist, thank God for therapists, right? Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, I think of things that I talk about with my therapist and the things that I told my therapist that was just like, um, and uh, the last session that, that we had together, it's she like, she, you know, she said, you've seen some shit, you know? <laughs> um, but one of the things that she had said to me that I thought was shocking was that there's, there's something rotten in Denmark. There's something about mm. your mom. That's not healthy. That's not cool. There's something there's, it's not you. Mm. You did not. And, and I'm saying this, not just, I'm not just repeating what she said to me. I'm saying this to our, you. And I'm saying this to our listeners who have gone through something similar to this. There's something wrong with your parents who allowed this shit to happen. It's not you. You didn't do anything to deserve this. If anything, it's quite the opposite. It's a testament to you and your strength of character who woke up one morning and said, I'm not going to let this define who I am. I'm going to rise above this. I am going to overcome this. And I have bad days and I have bad weeks. Trust me, I do. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely know whose fault it is. You know, I know who's responsible. It is that horrible, evil man and what he did to my entire family. You know, I, I don't blame myself. I do. Of course, I have shame and I have guilt and I have all that stuff. Um, and I don't know if that will ever go away. I don't. It may not. But I don't blame myself either. So I, I agree with you. So what do we do now? <laughs> I mean, I mean it's, it's crazy. I mean, what, what, what do you do now? What is your next step? Yeah. What, do you, what are you going to do next in all of this? So, so I have a petition out there on change.org um, for the attorney general to reopen the case. Um, I'm asking anybody who's listening to Jacob's story to sign it and share it for me because uh, there's power in that. There's power in, in thousands of people being behind a cause like this. Uh, the pressure, political pressure that it puts on somebody like an attorney general is, is pretty intense. And it's what's needed. Um, so that's my first thing is to get as many signatures as I can. I just passed a thousand signatures yesterday on that petition. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will continue to grow. I'm sharing Jacob's story on every channel, every outlet, every way that I can, um, from crime blogs to podcasts to YouTube videos, all this stuff, because the more people that hear it, um, the more pressure that creates. And so, like I said, this is my Hail Mary. If the attorney general refuses to prosecute, I have no other recourse. That's it. It's over. There's nowhere else to go. Um, but that's not going to stop me. I may not see justice for my brother ever. The man responsible may never go to jail. 
that's the reality. That's where I'm living. That's where I've been living for 33 years. I can accept that. I don't like it, but I can accept it. Um, but I can tell you what I will do. I will figure out every single loophole and every reason why this happened. And I will make sure that the laws in my state are changed so that nobody ever has to go through this again. And if that means that I have to run for public office, which is something I don't want to do, I will do it. If that means I have to become a lobbyist for child abuse laws in my state, I'll do that. I'm going to do whatever it takes because this continues to happen over and over again in New Mexico. And enough is enough. Somebody has to stand up and say that this isn't okay. Somebody has to stand up and say this has to change and somebody has to do something about it. And instead of me saying somebody needs to do it, you know what? Why not me? Which is a perfect segue into asking you to promote your petition, your website, and what can we do to help? Tell us everything that we need to do to help you. So the petition um, is on change.org. I can send you the link and you can put it in the show notes if that works for you. Um, yeah, of course, of course. It's a petition for the New Mexico Attorney General to, Excuse me, Justice for Jacob is what it's called. So if you just search Justice for Jacob on change.org, you'll find it there. Um, sign sign the petition, share the petition, share it on whatever social media uh, you have uh, as a listener, because that's going to help this tidal wave that I'm trying to create of awareness about Jacob's case. Jacob has been forgotten for 33 years, not by me and not by my family, but by the state of New Mexico. New Mexico has dropped the ball for Jacob. New Mexico continues to drop the ball for children in its state. And we need to build this pressure. And so that helps tremendously. So signing the petition, sharing the petition, sharing Jacob's story, share this episode with people. Uh, go to trueconsequences.com, share Jacob's episodes. I have three of them uh, from my show on social media. Get the word out. If you know anybody that has content similar to this, whether it's a podcast or a blog, I'm, I'm happy to, to put Jacob's story on your show. I, I want everybody to know that the state of New Mexico has let my brother down and continues to let children down. That's the only way it's going to change because until people are willing to talk about it, nothing's going to happen. No. Silence, e silence equals permission. Exactly. And that's the amazing thing to all of this is that people of our generation, people in our age group are starting to say, now the old ways didn't work. Being, mm -hmm. being quiet about it is not working. And it's about time that we actually step up and say, and, and, and be honest and, and come out and say, Hey, this is what happened. Yep. This, this is what happened to me when I was living in Brattleboro, Vermont, between the years of, I'm going to say, 1981 to 1986. This is what happened to me. And people mm -hmm. did the best that they could while also at the same time covered their ass. Yep. Because the, the rule was back then, unless a child said, I'm being abused, take me out of their home. There's nothing that, there's nothing that they would do. 
Mm-hmm. And now the, now those rules are changed for the better. And maybe they've gone a little too far. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's possible or not. Because just the mere whiff of any kind of abuse will, will bring the hammer down on you. And I think that that's, in the long run, that's probably a good thing. There should be an investigation. They yeah. should, if a kid says, hey, my dad's, my dad yells at me a little too much at home. You know what? Good. Investigate. Yeah. Flip over every rock. See what happens. See what you uncover. It, and maybe maybe that they're overcompensating for decades or centuries of turning the other cheek. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 it's, it's, I'm not trying to compare this to the Me Too movement. Maybe this is an aspect of the Me Too movement. We're not putting up with it anymore. And now that yeah. now that we have websites and we have um, podcasts, I think people should. I th- I think abusers should be upset, and I think abusers should be scared because we we are telling our stories. They count on your silence. It it emboldens them. It empowers them. They count on your fear to protect them, and I refuse to be silent. I refuse. Come for me. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm done. I'm done. That's where I'm at. This is a perfect place to leave it. And Eric, I think so. I can't, I can't tell, I, first of all, I can't tell you how proud I am to know you and the work that you've done. And, um, I consider myself, um, I consider you a friend of mine and I consider you a, a, a fellow crusader in the, in the, in the realm of, of, of solving unsolved cases and true crime. And I thank you for all of your work. And, and I, and I said, I said it the last time and I'll say it again, if you ever want to come on the show and give us an update, or you just want to talk about a case that you're working on or whatever, I want you to, I want you to feel free to come on and, and, and we'll do this again. Yeah. Well, I I have to say thank you. Uh, This means so much to me. And thank you for for sharing your story with me as well. Um, I also consider you a friend and I I will be forever grateful. I'll never forget that you did this for my family. So thank you. A special thanks to Aurora Caddy for joining us on this edition of True Crime One-on-One. Please be sure to visit and bookmark the website murdermurder.news. Follow Murder Murder on Twitter at mmurdernews and on Instagram at murdermurdernews. This has been True Crime One-on-One from the Fedora Chronicles. Find out more about our podcasts on the Fedora Chronicles Network by visiting our website, thefedorachronicles.com, where you can find our show notes, past episodes, and articles. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by simply searching for The Fedora Chronicles on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook after you found it so you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, fedorachronicle at gmail.com, are great ways to drop us a line with comments and future show topic suggestions. We might even read your comment on the air. Support the show by contributing to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fedora Chronicles. For a mere dollar a month, you get early access to the podcast, updates on what we're doing, and for $5 a month, you get all that and a t-shirt and coffee mug. Terms and conditions apply. 
Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at Zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Our theme song for True Crime One-on-One is Cliffhanger by Olive Music from Premium Beat, which provided the license for the song. The Fedora Chronicles radio show and our other podcasts is edited and produced by Eric Hunter King Fisk. That's me. Copyright The Fedora Chronicles 2020. All rights reserved.